Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week our show is all about no fear for the holidays with some of our favorite guests. The mayor of Amman, Jordan, Akil Botaji. Roger Dow of the United States Travel Association. And Elaine Shilina from the New York Times reporting from Paris. And many others. So happy holidays and remember to give yourself the gift of travel. Toto, I've feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. In the interest of full disclosure, I have to talk about my next guest with a little bit of background. Um, I've known him for more than 20 years. I've been coming to Jordan for more than 20 years. And uh, when I first came here, I was doing a piece uh, for the Travel Channel. And uh, we had a pretty, good, pretty big crew here, and I needed a helicopter. I needed help. I needed guidance. And he gave it. We became very good friends. He then was the Minister of Tourism. He then went on to uh, basically develop Aqaba as a major business center, not just a vacation destination. He's an advisor to His Majesty, the King of Jordan, and he now has the distinction of being the mayor of Amman. My good friend, His Excellency Akil Botaji, welcome, sir. 
Thank you, Peter, and uh, welcome uh, back home. <laughs> it's home. It is for me. I, 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 that's uh, the interest, other interest of uh, full disclosure. I do feel home here, and, and, and what's crazy about it is, and it's, it brings up our first topic, and, you know, so many of my friends, people who I believe to be educated, cultured, smart, traveled, they're always asking me, because they always can ask me this question, where are you going, where are you coming back from? When I ever tell them that, they go, really? It's safe? Um, and, you know, there's a great fear factor about this region. I understand why. You understand why. Um, and yet, when I drag my friends, and you know I've done this before, I drag them kicking and screaming to Jordan using a large strength, and, you know, industrial strength spatula. I get them on the plane. I get them here. Within 24 hours, they're having a great time because they couldn't believe it was so great. But it's perception. This is a perception-based industry travel. And the perception right now is, the entire region is, is unstable. It reminds me when you were here in the uh, year 2000 and uh, Secretary Baker and his family, entire family were here on a, a friend's meeting and uh, they were downtown and the people back home uh, said, Baker in Amman at this time? And the answer was, if uh, Peter Greenberg uh, is in Amman, uh, why not? <laughs> Uh, so you, you, you are a sign of uh, not only goodwill, but uh, a good destination, a safe destination, because I think that's exactly what you do, and uh, that's what you provide for your uh, um, audience although and listeners. I, although I will tell you this, my job is really not to promote travel. My job is not to advertise or sell it. It's to present it, to let people know they can, have, they can make intelligent choices about where they want to go and what they want to do. So I'm not out there flying a flag or, or, or cheerleading. I'm just letting them know that, yeah, it's okay to come. Um, by the same token, uh, Jordan has its share of problems, not ma many of its own, of its own doing. I mean, the fourth largest city you have right now is Syrian refugees. Yeah. Um, you know, let's take a look at where you are geopolitically. You know, you're, you're in a pretty tough neighborhood. Well, uh, this is a safe haven, has been. Uh, throughout the years, throughout the centuries, if you go through our history, uh, you will find that, that people have always come to this part of the world, this part of the Holy Land, for refuge. Particularly lately, in the last hundred years, you know, the creation of the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, a princedom and back in the last century, in the 20, 1923 on, but later on, in 48, accommodating a lot of the Palestinians, and uh, then in the uh, year 1990 on, a lot of Iraqis, uh, 1.5 million at one point. And, uh, and prior to that, uh, when Saddam Hussein uh, barged into Kuwait, a half a million Jordanians uh, fled back home. So that was another uh, kind of wave of emigration. And, uh, then on, on and on, and now the uh, uh, Syrian uh, refugees and uh, finding uh, Jordan not as just a, a neighbor, but a, a, a brotherly uh, country, and uh, our arms and homes uh, are open uh, for them. Uh, it has created issues, problems, uh, impact, and I'm glad that the world community is getting more and more aware of, of, of this, uh, Peter. Uh, and you will uh, throughout, you know, your your stay here, and you'll you'll see that you will probably hear a Syrian accent here, an Iraqi accent there, a Yemeni, Lib and a Libyan, 
even, uh, plus the Egyptians who, who make a, a good uh, number of people, but they're workers here. They're, they're I, mean, I mean, to put things in perspective, not until recently. I remember Gulf War I uh, landing in Amman and seeing on the runway all the old Iraqi air jets that were flown here and everybody just got off the plane and ran. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and those planes stayed on that runway out there at the airport for years. years. Yeah. Yeah. And you, you kept on reminding us. Of, I did. Why I don't they fly? Yeah, no, why don't you just get rid of them? <laughs> <laughs> they were the old 727. Well, they, they, they were getting rid of uh, sold scrap. Yeah. So that, that's yeah. uh, how it was. And by the way, you have a new airport within the last three years. I mean, that's that's a big change. too. A, a, a great airport. And a, it's a, a PPP. It's a private-public uh, uh, partnership uh, project. It has proven to be uh, right. Uh, the government is making money. Uh, the uh, passengers and customers are getting a much, much better service. Uh, the uh, investors are also making money. And that's uh, free enterprise. Plus your airline, Royal Jordanian. When I first flew Royal Jordanian, they had a couple of old Airbuses. They had Lockheed L-1011s. They had the TriStars. Now you've got, uh, you, I, you did. Come on. You Those did. were from Burbanks, uh, Peter. <laughs> they, from Lockheed and were, Burbank, they, that's they, right. Yeah, they were, the, they were the best of the sky in those days. Remember in fact, that, King Hussein used to fly yeah, that 1011. Yeah, remember the cockpit? Yeah. Uh, that cockpit was close to... Uh, that was luxurious. It was a suite. Right. Yeah. Oh, my God. But again, uh, Royal Jordanian is still flying, and now the uh, Dreamliner, the 787, and I hope you took that from uh, I New did, York. I did, yeah. Great, a great flight. But the bottom line is, you still, uh, your numbers are still down. And I'm one of those people who says the following, that the best time to go to a destination, with exceedingly few exceptions, is either after a natural disaster, uh, a civil disturbance, or an act of ter political terrorism or, or violence. Because that's when they need to see you the most. That's when they are most open to welcome you. You'll have the best service. You'll have the best experience and you won't spend a lot of money. Jordan, for me, has been that way for 20 years. You know, Peter, uh, at one point you told me what your mother taught you or told you, to stay interested and not interesting. You know, uh, people, if people are interested in a destination, they'll find a way, they'll find an excuse, they'll come out and help. We want people to be interested in this part of the world, to learn more about it, like you have done uh, years and, and years over and again. And uh, so maybe the numbers then are down, but this is a, a chance for us to, to reach out and seek and say, folks, come and see what we're going through. See how we can accommodate people in distress. And also to our American friends, uh, see where your uh, income tax money uh, is spent because a lot of it is spent on schools, on hospitals. That's USAID. Or USAID. And, and we're, we're proud of that. So come and be interested in what you do overseas to people who are in need and in distress. And people who have kept the word to fight terror, no matter where it is, from day one, 9-11, was the alert that we joined forces along with the United States of America. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. I am a passenger.
speaking with Akhil Bataji, His Excellency the Mayor of Amman, an old friend of mine. We go back just a couple of decades. Um, I mentioned right at the break, Raiders of the Lost Ark, The Martian, uh, even the uh, a couple of shows on uh, the Eco Challenge. I mean, we go back to the Discovery Channel, uh, a show that I did on the Travel Channel, which is now on PBS called The Royal Tour with His Majesty. There are so many things that are now being shot here, uh, television and movies. Well, uh, we, we, we are not only experimental in this part of the world. Uh, we don't uh, copy, but we're creative. And uh, uh, that's what, uh, you know, His Majesty has led us into, into that. Uh, when uh, he was your uh, guide uh, on the royal tour, when uh, uh, Samer and uh, so many of us uh, in, in the Discovery, and now we have our Minister of, of Tourism, uh, Lina Nab, who uh, uh, worked for the last uh, 20, 25 years in, in hotel management and the Zara Group. Now she is in, uh, in that position. And she has developed so many areas uh, in the south, uh, particularly in Wadi Rum and, and, and the like. So um, there's so many things out here, uh, Peter, that uh, we would like to, to uh, bring out to our listeners and our viewers uh, on, on later shows, hopefully, when you come back and, and, and do more filming. Uh, but Jordan needs uh, to reach out. Jordan needs to be reached as well. You know, uh, we, we're, we're not crying out loud and saying, uh, save our lives and SOS. No, we, we, we're managing. We're, we're managing with, with the little we have. We're sharing it because as Karen Armstrong named uh, Amman the, the city of compassion, the first city of compassion, somehow she named Seattle as the second city of compassion. And there must be a, an American legend about, about that, and, you know, in the last century or the 19th century with... Uh, refugees coming from uh, the uh, Pacific and, and the, the other side. So, uh, again, we in Jordan at this point, and, and Amman in particular, the, the city of friend, brotherly love, Philadelphia. Sister city. Uh, and sister city. You know, we, you, you've got Philadelphia with, with, the, with the broken bell there to remind everybody of the liberty. And uh, even some of our columns from our ruins are there in in, in, in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, speaking of that, I'm going to be there next week, so um, <laughs> in Philadelphia. Uh, we want to thank you, Peter, for, for all you're doing. We want to thank the, through you, the, the American people. And uh, this is from someone who is serving 4.4 million people, uh, someone that uh, every morning makes sure that something like 6,000 tons of, of refuse and uh, uh, garbage is collected from a city of 800 square kilometers. But you see, you learned something being the mayor that many mayors didn't learn, which that means they lost their job. Because you're real, uh, what, what you pivot on as a mayor is if the schools are open, the buses run on time, and the garbage gets picked up, you're the most popular guy in town. Well, with the 1.2 million cars in the city, uh, you may have a little problem getting from one point to the other, but that is also being sorted out. We've got uh, more uh, roads built, uh, uh, tunnels, uh, bridges, uh, money spent on the infrastructure. But it's a, it's a city of 4,000 people in 1906, 40,000 people in 1946, to a city of 4.4 million people in 2016. Just imagine. This, this is the uh, exponential 
uh, uh, not growth, because growth normally is normal. This is an abnormal way uh, of absorbing, but the resiliency the city has shown has uh, given it the respect of uh, people in the United States of America and Europe, in Japan and all over the world. And then, of course, it's the image. I mean, you know, the Treasury Building and Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh, the desert landscape used for the Martian. I mean, there are a lot of things that people will look at and go, oh, that was shot in Jordan? I had no idea. Yeah, starting with Lars Rebbe, of course. Yes, I know. Uh, yeah. In the Wadi Rum. Uh, Wadi Rum. Uh, you know, uh, Wadi Rum, the Valley of the Moon. 1975, it was uh, uh, one of the astronauts visiting his majesty, and his majesty, the late king, took him on a chopper to Wadi Rum, and they landed on top of one of the uh, hills there, and turned to his majesty, he said, your majesty, this is the closest thing on earth that I see to what I have put my foot on on the moon, since it's been called uh, Valley of the Moon. Riding along in my automobile My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. Joining us now, one of our regulars on the show, the CEO and president of the United States Travel Association, our good pal, Roger Dow. Hey, Roger. Peter, how are you? I'm good. You know, there is so much to talk about. Uh, there always is, but especially uh, at this particular time, we've got the uh, the Congress dealing with the FAA reauthorization, which has been so long in coming, and I want to get your thoughts on that, good, bad, and ugly. Uh, we still have huge problems with the TSA uh, in terms of staffing, management, allocation of their resources, uh, and long, long lines in, in, in a summer in which more people are traveling than ever before, which means they may be traveling more slowly than ever before. And then, of course... The one, uh, you know, imponderable at this point, although it is a ponderable, the Zika virus and how that impacts your decisions on whether you travel at all. So let's start, first of all, with the FAA, Roger. You guys have been big proponents of getting this thing through Congress. Uh, are you happy with what they've done so far? Uh, I would say we, we give them a, a B minus. Uh, parts we're very happy with. Uh, we've been kicking the can down the road on the FAA reauthorization for years, it's the same thing with highways. And the bottom line is they won't step up and improve airports, and we've got to get a air traffic control system that operates as well as our navigation in our cars. We're so far beyond the eight ball when it comes to air navigation. You know, it's, it, what's interesting to me, Roger, and I'm not saying this as any sort of an exaggeration, and this comes from veteran airline pilots, and I listen to them, and I also train with them, they will tell you they've got better avionics and navigation systems in their cockpit than the FAA has in the control towers. And, and that they think, and this is obviously open to discussion, that they'd have a better chance and do a better job of proper separation and traffic control than the current system run by the ATC on the ground. Well, there's, there's no question about it. It has to be improved. I mean, we're sitting in a world with satellite navigation where you can get your car and push a button and you can go all the way from where you live in Southern California to where you live in New York 
and uh, no, and be there within two feet of where you started. And we've got to do the same thing. We've got uh, we're dealing with antiquated technology. It, it's almost like an old radar system, and we just have to step up and get with the modern age. But you know what that means is I remember going back uh, not that long ago with the uh, with with President George W. Bush when there was a problem, and he basically said, "Let's open up." all the military skyways up there to alleviate an air traffic control problem. And within 24 hours, no planes were late. How'd that happen? You know, it is, it's, it's the thinking like that, that, that can really make a difference. I mean, we've got the capacity and it's just a darn shame in today's world that we have to have the planes, you know, fly as far apart as they do. We're still, we're still based on a system where they used to follow bonfires and the planes still go in a jig-jag way to get around the country as if they still had the bonfires, instead they have radar control systems. Well, you, you, you know, the, the bonfire story reminds me. My mom uh, grew up in Southern California. Her father, my grandfather, basically built Douglas Aviation with Donald Douglas. And shortly before my mother passed away, I was visiting her in New York. And she said, you know, there's something I always wanted to give you. Open up the second drawer of my desk. And I opened up the drawer of the desk, and there was... It looked like an old map, folded up an accordion map with the two hardback sides, but it was just one piece of paper on a map. Well, when I opened it up, the cover said Transcontinental Air Transport, T-A-T. Some old-timers listening to the show might remember that was the predecessor to TWA. And you opened it up, and it was a map of the first transcontinental flight across America, which, which my grandfather had taken. And the map was nothing more than the railroad tracks that the pilots followed. They followed the railroad. And all the plane spotters on the ground were at those railroad tracks at stations, and they would see the plane flying overhead, and they'd make a phone call to report that's where it was. And guess what? The plane took off, and it landed. One little aside on this, Roger, on the back of the map that my mother gave me, which, by the way, is now in a safe, for reasons you'll understand the minute I tell you, was a signature given to each passenger by the pilot flying that plane. Are you ready? Wow. Yep. Charles Lindbergh. Oh, my gosh. Uh, yeah. What's the combination to the safe, Peter? That's, <laughs> that's something that should be hanging in our offices. You should donate it. Uh, we'll, we'll discuss the value of that donation for tax purposes <laughs> later. Hey, but, but, but the bottom line here is what they followed back in 1929 essentially created the system that we're using today. It is exactly what you're talking about. And... Uh, and yet, we have the technology today to do a much better job, which would not be a less safe job. It would be a much more efficient job. It would greatly, you know, all the delays in America start in the New York area. It would, it would, we could add much more capacity to LaGuardia, to Newark, to JFK, and begin pulling down all those delays and cancellations we're seeing. Well, you know, Robert Crandall, the former chairman of American, has another solution in addition to increasing and improving the air traffic system. He wants to get rid of little commuter planes. Uh, he says they're more responsible for delays than anybody else, and they take up as much gate space as a 747 and as much radar space as a 747 based on the current separation policies of the, uh, of the air traffic control system. If we could figure that one out, you know what? LaGuardia might actually be on time once in the last century, right? It's amazing. They have more scheduled takeoffs and landings that is humanly possible by math on how far apart the planes have to be. So every day they start the day knowing it's going to be delayed. 
Well, here's what I've never understood, and I can never get anybody to explain this to me. I promise you, I, I, I challenge everybody listening to the show to spend a morning with a stopwatch and go out to your local airport if it's a, if it's a major city airport. It could be LaGuardia, it could be O'Hare, it could be LAX, it could be San Francisco, Miami, Dallas, you get it. And pick one runway. And go out to the end of that runway. You know, you can stay, you know, you're, you could be a plane spotter on the other side of the fence. So you're not getting involved in any kind of security issue. And count the difference in time, the actual time span between takeoffs. It's got to be at least two and a half minutes, right? Yep. By the time the plane yep. taxis in a position and takes off, he has to wait till the other plane clears because of wake turbulence. So there's not a runway that I know of that can handle more than about 22 departures in the best-case scenario, in an hour. So why are airlines allowed to schedule 34 departures at 8 a.m. on one runway? It's ludicrous. It's delusional. I think they're on crack. It's amazing. And day in, day out, they face the same problem. Exactly. So uh, to the extent that they've done the the FAA reauthorization, when does this all kick in now, Roger? Uh, Basically, uh, it doesn't kick in yet. Uh, They've got an extension. The Senate is still going back and forth on it, and I think there's going to be more discussion. I think that it's going to roll over to the next administration. Well, here we go again. So uh, fasten your seatbelts. It may not be a bumpy ride, but it may be a whole lot longer one. But we will be watching that space. Now let's shift gears to my other favorite topic of the day, our friends at the uh, TSA. You know, we know about the staff shortages. We know about their retention levels are so bad that uh, Tom Costello, uh, uh, my former colleague at NBC, did a report recently saying that in a given month, they're losing, you know, almost three to 400 people who are literally just walking off the job and not coming back. Uh, they're not striking. They're just going home. They're not going back to work. So they're down in the numbers. They're down in retention. And then you have more people traveling than ever before. This has got nightmare scenario, not only written all over it, it's already all over it, right? We're right in the middle of it. Uh, the reports from air, uh, airports like O'Hare are thousands of people in the past couple of months missing their flights, and it's just going to get worse during the summer, I'm sorry to say. And the solution, Roger? Solution is multi-things. We've got to pull out all the stops. We've got to do a lot of things. We've got to train more people, hire more people. We've got to get people like you and myself, which we already are, but in TSA pre-check, we've got to take trusted Americans who we know are not going to blow up a plane and get them through an airport faster and, and the trusted traveler program like pre-check. And we've got to market and promote it, and uh, we just we've got to have all the stops. We've got to let companies sign up a thousand people at a time, and not do onesies and twosies. Well, there's one more thing we got to do. We have to figure out the culture of the TSA, because when they failed that test from the from the Inspector General, when all those fake bombs and weapons got in without being detected, and they had a failure rate of something ridiculous, like 93 percent. The, the TSA's response was, wow, if we failed at that speed, we should go slower. So now they're failing at the same rate, only they're doing it slower. Hello? Uh, this is your captain speaking. There is absolutely no cause for alarm. Get your motor running. Head out on the highway. Looking for adventure. It seems about once every two or three years we're, we're confronted with an outbreak, uh, a pandemic sometimes called, 
of a disease that we know little about, but that tends to be, at least in perception, spreading rapidly. And this year's edition is Zika, which some people are saying is is the most alarming of the diseases in recent years. It's having a huge impact in travel decisions to places in South America, in Central America, in the southeastern part of the United States, and even Puerto Rico, which has seen their numbers drop substantially. Roger, how real is this, and what should people know about it? Well, the first thing is, I always say in these things, we don't want to term a turn a pandemic or an epidemic into an infodemic. So first of all, not you, Peter, but many of your colleagues in the media love to whip these things into a frenzy. I think uh, I recall about a year and a half ago, most of us are going to be dead with Ebola. Didn't happen. SARS view didn't happen. SARS, bird flu. But the problem is listen to the experts, but be careful. I mean, I think it's going to have huge impact on the Olympics and travel to Brazil and uh, people coming back there. And it's, it's only a matter of time for this thing could jump to America. But so far, it hasn't. It's people who come from these areas have been affected over there and brought the disease back. Uh, so far, we haven't had a mosquito population infect anyone in the U.S. that we know of. Although, to be to be real about this, all of the diseases that are considered either communicable, they tend to travel. Um, and, and so that's the real concern. Even Ebola did travel to the U.S., uh, very isolated cases, but it did travel. Uh, if you are playing the percentages, and by the way, we do, to make calculated risk decisions about the choices you make in travel, I mean, intelligence would dictate that you, you would just be better informed, that you would not go to certain affected areas that you know to be affected, to that might affect you. Uh, Roger, you and I are off the hook because we're not planning on getting pregnant the last time I looked. But the, the bottom line is, you need to be an informed traveler to be able to be a traveler. And so far, the worst four-letter word that starts with F when it comes to travel remains that word fear. There's no question about it. Fear is what keeps people from traveling, and uh, you have to be smart. I don't want to be Pollyanna on this. As you say, things can travel. Who knows when the first mosquito jumps in someone's suitcase and survives, and, uh, and then we have it here. Right now, it hasn't happened, but listen to the experts and take precautions. And the bottom line is this. Forgetting Zika for a second, uh, the reality is Brazil does not have its act together for the Olympics. Uh, Brazil does not have its politics together in general. Their president, you know, is hanging on by a thread. Talk about a 5% approval rating. Their economy is falling apart right now. Uh, You know, every four years, some country thinks that the Olympics, an event that only lasts two and a half weeks, is going to save their entire economy for eternity. Uh, The good news is it does allow them to improve their infrastructure and clean up their act uh, and build new hotel rooms and build new sport and build new sporting facilities. But the flip side is when that two and a half week event is over, they got to fill a whole lot of hotel rooms and they got to fill a whole lot of stadiums and their infrastructure is there, but the people may not be. I mean, I still believe that Atlanta is still trying to fill hotel rooms from the year 1996 when they had the Olympics there. Uh, So, I'm sorry, go ahead, Roger. Oh, no, I say we've observed that when the Olympics was in L.A., when it was in Atlanta. What basically happens is anyone who's local gets out of town. Anyone who's having a business trip or leisure, Americans don't understand calendars very well, so they'll avoid an Atlanta or an L.A. or a place that has the Olympics for the entire summer knowing the Olympics is going to be sometime during the summer. (laughs) 
Right, but I will say this. I, I remember the Olympics in 84 in Los Angeles, and I stayed. I remember everybody said, oh, I'm leaving town. It's going to be a horrendous. It was the best time to be in Los Angeles in my entire history. The freeways were uncrowded. There were no traffic jams. People were nice to each other. Things got done. The air pollution levels were completely reduced. Uh, oh, and by the way, they had the Olympic Games, too. Yes, that's the one where you, you ran in the hurdles, wasn't it? Yes, that was that was just on the that was just on the San Diego freeway because you could run on the San Diego freeway then. Uh, now you can't even walk. But but the real okay. bottom line here, and 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 to be realistic about it is, you need to be an informed traveler. And when it comes to something like Zika, when it comes to something like a State Department advisory, remember they are advisories. They're not bans. They're not prohibitions. They're for you to just take all this information and hopefully put it into proper perspective. I would make one other uh, suggestion. Don't just depend on the U.S. State Department advisories. Go beyond that and look at what the British Foreign Office is doing in terms of making suggestions to their citizens. I often think that the British Foreign Office does a better job of informing their citizens about real on-the-ground, cutting-edge information in locations around the world than we do. So I wouldn't suggest that you just depend solely on the State Department for the United States. Go check out what the British Foreign Office is doing. You might be pleasantly surprised about the information that actually helps you make a much more intelligent, informed decision about everywhere you travel, Zika or no Zika. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Now I radio clearance over. That's Clarence over. Over. Roger. Huh? My next guest, in the interest of full disclosure, I've known way too long. <laughs> um, since the 70s, actually, when we both worked at Newsweek magazine. We were both... Uh, uh, very young. Very, oh, so young. We were in diapers, I believe, um, covering stories that most of you, if you admit that you remember them, then you're as old as we are. Uh, stories like Gary Gilmore and, 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 of course, Watergate. And I mean, it goes on and on and on. And then she graduated from uh, from Newsweek, as I did, and went on to to be a great writer for the New York Times, living right here in Paris. She's written a number of books. Her most recent book, which we've talked about on the, on, on the air before and bears repeating again, is The Only Street in Paris and uh, Life on the Rue de Martyr. And we'll, we'll talk about that with our good pal, Elaine Chilino. Hi, Elaine. Hi, Peter. So first, before we get to the book, because here we are. Uh, it's it's November of 2016. It's essentially one year after the terrible incident at the nightclub in which so many people were slaughtered. Uh, it's five months after uh, the terrible incident on July 14th in Nice. Um, tourism is down in France. It, it hasn't rebounded in, in, in as fast as I thought it might. And yet, uh, here I am, not feeling unsafe, having a great time talking with you, uh, but you're an American. You live here. What do, what are you feeling? What are you seeing? Oh, Paris is safe. Uh, Paris is no less safe than walking around any American city and running into uh, someone who's got a submachine gun behind a street corner. Uh, the challenge Except is, I didn't see any submachine guns today. I saw some on the way here, but they were being held uh, uh, by the held police. By the by the um, Green Beret uh, uh, paramilitary guys, right. yes. So, I mean, you, you do see a show of force, and in fact... Uh, there's still an official state of emergency here. Yes, there's the perception and there's the reality. I mean, what happened, uh, if you want to recap, is that uh, 
after the first terrorist attacks in January 15, uh, 2015, uh, there was a, 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 an immediate reaction, but everyone thought it would get better because those attacks were targeted against specific uh, uh, political and religious targets. That was, that, was that was Charlie Hedberg. Yes, uh, a satirical magazine. newspaper, yeah. magazine, and uh, a Jewish supermarket. And so everyone thought, okay, fine, it'll be back to normal. Then what happened is um, January, November, uh, November uh, 2015. Uh, 2015, you have an attack against a way of life. You have an attack against a concert hall. You have an attack against a, a soccer uh, a, a stadium uh, that thankfully the uh, attackers did not uh, wreck as much uh, uh, blood and destruction uh, that they, they could have. Um, you had attacks against bistros and bars. So it was in a, on a Friday night. And a nightclub. And a nightclub, yes. Well, the, the concert hall right. nightclub. And, um, and that universalized the fear that anybody coming to Paris to just have a good time sitting out on the terrace of a bistro, going to a concert, going to a, a, a soccer match, uh, can be targeted. Then what happened in 2016, it, it couldn't be worse. It was both nature and, and uh, uh, human intervention. You had massive floods in, in, in Paris in January of 2016, which, which completely uh, paralyzed uh, Paris. In the spring, you had massive strikes. And I can remember going, um, trying to go from one place to another past Envalide and suddenly getting caught in a tear gas attack. And you think, oh, my gosh, you know, I haven't... Yeah, is this is this Paris 1968? I couldn't get from uh, either on foot or through the metro to 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 my destination. And luckily, I was meeting an old friend who was an uh, an, an ex war correspondent, so he didn't mind that I was an hour late for our cocktail. Uh, but so you had had strikes plus tear gas. As you said, you've got this ongoing state of emergency, national state of emergency, which means that a lot of American Japanese insurers do not insure travelers to come to Paris. Um, July 14th, you had the attack in Nice, which again means Paris, uh, France is under attack. And now the latest iteration of it is that you have uh, an immigration uh, influx. I don't want to call it a crisis, but you've, you've had to move immigrants into Paris and you have photographs of immigrants, refugees, homeless in Paris, uh, greater Paris, uh, they may not be at the Plaza Atene where we are sitting right now, but the images, the photographs of uh, uh, homeless people yep. in tents. I'm going to show you this picture. Your, your oh, yeah. listeners can't can't uh, can see, it. see it, but yep. here it is. This says Paris today. You know, lots of people in tents uh, inside Paris, and that has had a chilling effect. And people are saying, you know what? We go to Paris. Because we want to live Paris, breathe Paris, enjoy Paris, and and if we're not going to feel 100% comfortable, why not go to Rome or Madrid? All right. Now, having said what you said, the interpretation that I have is, on one hand, there's never been a dull moment in two years. Um, but then that I can also say, on a positive side, there's never been a dull moment. So you're still here. You haven't left. Well, we've just had a presidential election in my country, and I have to say that um, you know Paris seems pretty uh, stable. Uh, but we're going to have a presidential <laughs> election here uh, in uh, in uh, 2017. So who knows what's going to happen? So you're staying. We're staying. Yes, we're staying. I'm writing a new book, uh, and uh, it's France related. And uh, and yes. 
Well, we'll and call- everybody who wants to come to the Rue des Martyrs, I'll take you on the tour of my neighborhood, which is safe and wonderful. And the commer- the, co- the commerçants, the merchants, and the people who live there will welcome you, invite you. Well, I want to talk about the book in a second, but let's talk about the friends that you have in the States. Uh, you know, when these incidents happen, what are you hearing from them? Or what are you telling them? You know, you say your friends in the States. There are friends and there are friends. I mean, my kids are coming here for Christmas. One of my kids is here now. They, my, my family doesn't feel afraid and my best friends don't feel afraid. But there is a sort of malaise. There's this sort of feeling of unease. Again, it doesn't have to do with anything specific that, oh, we're going to turn around the corner and there's going to be a terrorist attack. It's more like, do I want to go to a place where when I go into, into um, a supermarket or a theater or the Plantin or Gallery Lafayette, I have to open up my bag. Do I want to literally bump into teams of um, armed, uh, you know, army, big heavy army guys with with, with uh, their vests on and their submachine guns bumping into them on the street because they go in, in teams of four and, and, and six. So it's a, it's a perception. It's a feeling like, am I going to relax if I go to Paris? Well, you see this, but you haven't left, which means you've adjusted. Yes, but I'm an ex-war correspondent. You know, I mean, I've I've done Lebanon, Iran, Iraq, uh, you know, uh, Syria. You know, I've been locked in a room by the late Muammar Gaddafi and put in prison in Damascus. So, you know, I have maybe a different to- tolerance level for this kind of thing. And now you're being held against your will on a radio show at the Plaza Atene. At the Plaza Atene. It's oh, my God. Nice yeah, exactly. I like all the gold in well, this room. We'll, we'll try to negotiate your release in about a year, okay? <laughs> But seriously, when, when you talk to your friends who aren't the war correspondents and you're talking to a number of people who probably read your articles when you're listening, when you're talking on the show, what are you telling them? Look, none of my friends are afraid to come to Paris to visit. But I can tell you, having been on vacation in the States in the summer, that there were a lot of people who said at you know, dinner parties or cocktails or whatever, you know, I don't think I'm going to Paris. First of all, my company won't let me go to Paris because, because of the my, insurance. Because of my insurance. And secondly, if I want to go on vacation, why do I want to go someplace where I'm just going to feel a little uneasy sitting in a bistro having a cocktail? It's perception. You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast from a new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. 
Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news and culture maker interviews and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.